Max Lucado, in his book, In the Eye of the Storm, tells a story of two paddle boats that left Memphis at the same time, traveling down the Mississippi River to New Orleans. As they traveled side by side, the sailors from one vessel made a few remarks about the snail's pace of the other. Words were exchanged, challenges were made, and the race began. Competition became vicious as the two boats roared through the deep south. One boat began falling behind, not enough fuel. There had been plenty of coal for the trip, but not enough for the race. As the boat dropped back, an enterprising young sailor took some of the ship's cargo and tossed it into the ovens. When the sailors saw that the supplies burned as well as the coal, they fueled their boat with the material they had been assigned to transport. They ended up winning the race, but they burned their cargo. It's unfortunate that in our Christian experience, we too often lose track of our priorities. We win the race, but burn the cargo, so to speak. So in effect, we haven't really won at all. We desire to accomplish a worthy goal, but go about it in such a way as to lose all benefit in its success. Another way to put this is that we're all too easily sidetracked. Satan, our enemy, and you, you better know he is your enemy, is a master at this deception of deflection. He tempts us to stray from the course of glorifying God all the while convincing us that we've never left the track. And then one day we wake up and it dawns on us that we're no closer to spiritual maturity than we were when we started. We're all susceptible to being sidetracked. We're all susceptible to the deception of deflection. And we all need to be on guard against it. We must develop a singular focus in life that drives our every action. An aging Solomon who himself had been seriously sidetracked during his life, ended his life by saying, Remember your Creator in the days of thy youth. Remember your Creator. Our every thought, decision, and action must be filtered through that grid. If we're to live a successful life, we can't burn the cargo while attempting to win the race. Philosophers have defined success or a successful life in a variety of ways. But for the Christian, a successful life is defined by higher authority. The crew of that paddle boat might have considered themselves to have been successful, but it's pretty certain that the owner of the boat didn't consider that trip a success. Our success or failure in this life will ultimately be judged by the Lord himself at the Bema seat or the judgment seat of Christ and receive the only well done that really matters, we must keep our priorities straight. We must keep the first things the first things. We must do that if we're to have a successful Christian life. Paul's going to end up the book of Titus, this letter to Titus, speaking about this kind of success when he says in verse 8, this is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God may be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. But shun foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. 
Reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. In these verses we see, in typical Pauline style, a positive idea followed by its negation with a negative concept. What Paul says in these verses is that we are to engage in good deeds, good works, while avoiding unprofitable things that will sidetrack us from that which is good and profitable, that which will lead to spiritual success. The trustworthy statement that Paul refers to in the the beginning of verse 8 actually looks backward rather than forward. This is a common phrase for Paul, and sometimes he's looking forward to what he's about to say, but other times he's looking back to what he already has said. Here he's looking back rather than forward. We're to keep what God has done for us in focus at all times and not allow the details of life to sidetrack us from our primary task. What has God done for us? Well, look at verse 4. But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds, which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Christ Jesus our Savior, that being justified by His grace, we might be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That's what the trustworthy statement is. Because that's true, then there's something that's expected of us. And doesn't that sound very much like Paul? In almost every one of his letters, he does something like this. You notice in verse 5, he makes a point of saying that we're not saved, we're not justified by works. But then when we get to verse 8, he says it's our responsibility to perform works. So what's the deal? In Ephesians 2, he says, For by grace you've been saved, through faith, not of works. And yet, in the next verse, he says, We're appointed for good works. We've been created for good works. In Ephesians 2.10. What is this bouncing back and forth for Paul all about? In Romans, he tells us, We're not justified by the works of the law. We see, for Paul, and for God speaking through Paul, there's, there's two different aspects to this. We get to Christ and we get to God in the first place through Christ apart from any work that we could do. Apart from anything that we could do. We come with the empty hands of faith. And when you come with faith, that's empty hands. Some people try to make faith a work. Faith is not a work. The work is done by someone else. Faith is no more a work than receiving a Christmas gift from someone else is a work. You give me a Christmas gift, you shouldn't have to say thank you to me. Because I didn't do any work, I received it. You see the point? Coming with the empty hands of faith means you didn't come with any work on on your behalf at all. But after we're saved, work is expected of us. In Protestantism, from the 1500s on, work has become a dirty four-letter word in many circles. It's either become a dirty four-letter work or or it's been abused in some way. Uh, granted, there was the Protestant work ethic that Calvin had, had urged his followers to be hard workers. But for the most part, work's become a bad word because we know we don't work to be justified. Right! We've got that part. You are justified already. I'm assuming everybody in this room is justified, meaning you've placed your faith alone in Christ alone. I assume you've done that. If you've not, then definitely please, all joking aside, please talk to me afterwards because we've got a huge issue that we've got to take care of before this day is out, before this nighttime finishes. But assuming you've already trusted Jesus Christ by grace through faith alone, now work is expected of you. 
In fact, Paul says in another place, for we must all appear, that's all believers in context, every single one of us, not just carnal believers, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may be recompensed or paid back for the deeds done in the body, according to what he has done, whether it's good or worthless. Did you hear that? There is going to be a time. Sometimes people wonder, why why don't we talk about eschatology? This is eschatology, my friends. This is the eschatology that matters to you the most. There'll be a day when we talk about all the events of the tribulation. That's coming. And and everybody's going to have a great time with that. But you're not going to be really interested in those events at that time. Because you're going to be slightly preoccupied. Because while the events of the tribulation are going on down here, we're going to be up there, each one of us, by ourselves, individually, one at a time, going through the judgment seat of Christ. That's eschatology, too. And that's what this passage is talking about. Every single one of us must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And as best as I can see, best as I can tell from Luke chapter 19, Matthew chapter 25, and Second uh, Corinthians chapter 5, we do it one at a time. I don't know how it's going to work. I don't know how you get a billion people in line. And, and again, on my aversion to lines, I hope he puts me either. At the, I hope it goes in alphabetical order. So I can be up, up close to the front somewhere and then go ahead and get it done with. But, you know, each one of us is going to stand up there to that famous seat. I don't know all the details. I don't know exactly how it's going to work. But I know it's going to be a time of evaluation. And the evaluation is not going to be as to whether or not you've trusted Christ. That's, that's already a done deal. You wouldn't be at the judgment seat if you hadn't already trusted Christ. There's another judgment for those who haven't. That's called the great white throne judgment in Scripture. But for each of us, we will stand there. Just as sure as you're sitting here, you will be standing there. There's not a whole lot of things I can tell you with absolute certainty. I can't tell you exactly how you're going to die. I can't tell you when. can't tell you if all of us are going to go through the rapture or not. But I can tell you all of us are going to stand before that judgment seat of Christ. It's kind of like having a course, and they say, listen, at the end of this course, there will be a test. And we're going to evaluate. We're going to evaluate how much you learn during this course. Well, at the end of this life, there's going to be an evaluation. It's not going to be a test, per se. You're taking the test right now. Did you know that? You're taking the test now. You're just going to get your grade later. There is going to be a grade. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. That each one, not as a church. You may say, well, I go to a real fine church. Maybe you do, maybe you don't. That's, up for, that's for the Lord to decide. But your church affiliation is not what you'll be evaluated upon. It's your faithfulness. How faithful were you with what God gave you? Not how faithful you, you were with what God gave me, with what God gave your next-door neighbor, with what God gave Billy Graham. How faithful were you with what God gave you? Whatever giftedness... I hope you realize there's no special place at the judgment seat of Christ just because you were a pastor. Just because you were gifted as a teacher means nothing. It's how faithful you are with what giftedness you had that means everything. So how faithful are you? According to what he has done, that's a he or she, whether good, and that word good there is agathos, and we're talking about 2 Corinthians chapter 5 now, Agathos means good of intrinsic value. The, the Greek word for bad there is phallos, which means it's worthless. Do you ever realize that everything you're doing right now, everything you'll do for the rest of the evening, uh, tomorrow and so forth, is going to be evaluated whether it's beneficial or worthless? Do you ever think God, God looks at what we do as whether it's beneficial or whether that was worthless? 
we only have a certain number of ticks of the clock that we have stored up in our vault. We have a certain number of ticks. And about a third of those ticks are going to be taken up sleeping. God knows that already. So you've got two-thirds of the ticks while we're awake. And a great number of those are taken up at work. So if we took those third out and we said we only have eight hours a day worth of ticks that we can serve God or can't serve God, well, maybe not the sleeping, but you better be serving them at work as well because those ticks count. So when Paul says this trustworthy statement, he's looking backwards. And he's, he, he reminds us that we weren't saved by good works, but we're expected now to perform them as a result of what we have already had done for us. To do this requires a high degree of intentionality. We must be careful, though. We must be careful when we say that good works are a product of God's kindness and love within us. For good works don't just happen as though we were passive bystanders watching God work through us. There's always that tension as to the extent to which God is the source of our good works and to which we are responsible for doing something. I call the totally passive Christian the, the park bench Christian. The one who sits on the park bench watch, watching the world go by like a frog sitting on a lily pad and says, hey, Lord, you bring the people to me. But that's not what I read in the, in the Great Commission. The first imperative there is go. You're, you're supposed to get up off the park bench and go. You're not supposed to just sit back. Francis Schaeffer had a word for this. He used to call it active passivity. We understand that God does the work through us, but we've got to get up off of our keisters and go out and get the work done. It's our responsibility to be used of Him, to be willing to be used, not to sit home in the bed and say, well, if God wanted to use me, He'd bring somebody to me. You fool. Anybody that thinks that is a fool. You use your free will, the will that He gave you, and granted, I understand the will is not totally free. We have, we have the ability to choose within the parameters that God has given us. But you have to use that to do good works. That's what's expected of you. I cringe sometimes when I hear other believers call certain believers a bunch of do-gooders. What would you prefer me be? I mean, Really? Would you prefer me to be a jerk for Jesus? <laughs> you know, I mean, there are t-shirts. We can get them printed up if you want to. We can start a club, but it's not going very far. Bunch of do-gooders? What, what would you like them to do? Bad? Phallos? Kakos? I mean, if you want to use another language? Of course not. That's our responsibility. Now, God is going to do the work through you, but you've got to be the vessel that's willing to do it. So if you see somebody that needs help, you know, somebody's out there, it's something as simple as helping them change a tire or calling AAA for them, and you sit in your car and don't pick up the phone, you haven't done a good work, and you can't blame God for not working through you. It's kind of like that jack-in-the-box commercial. You've seen it? The car's turned up on the side in the ditch. Jack drives by and tells him, listen, you looks like you're in a rut. <laughs> yeah, you're in a rut. And the people are saying, yeah, we need some help, more or less. They're saying that. And then the record driver buys, drives by and says, hey, what's up? They must be in a rut, huh? Yeah, did you tell them about the breakfast? Yeah, and then they both drive off. That's not helping anybody. <laughs> Next time you see that commercial, think about this passage. I like Francis Schaeffer's term, active passivity. 
I also like the text that it came from, a text called True Spirituality. Excellent, excellent text on the spiritual life. I think Paul requires it for your course, do you not? I would if I was, if, if I was in your shoe. Now, granted, in context here, remember, Paul is ministering to Titus who's ministering in Crete. The Cretans were not known for good behavior. That's, that's right up front. In fact, they were known to be gluttons and liars. So the poor behavior on the part of the Cretans had been a source already in this epistle of negative review by the Apostle Paul and also by extension by God himself. They needed to get it right, and they needed to understand that there's not an unlimited amount of time for them to do it. You don't have to amen this, but, but the truth is life races by, doesn't it? It, it just flies by, at least once you get past a certain age. And it, may, it may go real slowly when you're 14, waiting to be 15, so you can get that learner's permit, right? And then when you're 15, that, that year between 15 and 16 may go real slow because then you want to get your driver's license. Then from 16 to, to 18 may go really slow because you're waiting to graduate high school. And then, of course, then from, from 18 until 21, 22, or 30, however long it takes you nowadays, th- then you finally have graduated college. Then you have your kids, and all of a sudden you wake up one day, and they're gone. They've gone away themselves. And you look back and say, what, just, what was that whoosh that just went by? Well, that was your first 40 years. That's half of it for most people. It flies by. So we've got to start now, today. If not yesterday, but you can't start yesterday. You can start today. Have you, have you ever been to a film? I love movies, or at least used to. I don't like them as much anymore because they're not as good quality. But have you ever been to a film, or remember the last time you went to a film, and when it ended, you said, Whoa! That's it? It's over? They're going to leave her like that? He, he died? It was what happened? Don't let your life be that way. Don't get all the way to the end of it. Say, whoa, whoa, whoa. No, wait a Give me another ten years. Hold on. I'd hate for you to get to the end of your life and on your deathbed have the thought to go through your head that I never really lived. I'm not talking about eat, drink, and be merry hedonism. I'm talking about living for Christ. Don't let that happen to you. And the way to not let it happen is to start now. Don't start when the kids get grown I'm going to start when the kids are away in college. Then I'm going to really start reading my Bible every day, and I'm going to have my prayer time. Because, you know, I just can't carve out 15, 20 minutes. You, you don't know about these little rugrats that I have. You know, i got to take them to soccer, and i got to take them to the baseball game, and then i got to pick them up after school, and then there's the play next week. And Start focusing on the Lord first. Everything else is going to fall into play. Paul maintains that Titus must insist... He must insist that the Cretans learn Christian theology, especially its demands on their life, so that they will vigorously pursue good works. This provides us with another illustration of one of the primary themes in Titus, and that is that right theology and right practice are bound together. The Bible knows of no dichotomy between those two. None. Did you hear that? The Bible knows, the scriptures tell us nothing of learning the word of God and leaving it there. There's always learning and doing. Learning and behaving. Learning and acting consistently with what it is we've learned. Otherwise, 
James tells us that it's worthless. This is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently. This is Paul to Titus. So that those who have believed God, and this is referring us again back to verses 4 through eight, four through 7, may be careful to engage in good deeds. These are good and profitable for men. It's interesting that there are two primary words in Greek for good. The one I've already mentioned, that's agathos, good of intrinsic value, good of lasting value. That's the word Paul uses in 2 Corinthians 5, A-G-A-T-H-O-S, agathos. Here he uses a different word, kalos, K-A-L-O-S. Some, at least that only scratch the surface, believe that kalos is, is a word that lacks the depth of agathos. But that's not entirely the case. Kalos is not necessarily a weaker word. And kalos is the one we have here in verse 8, when he says, may be careful to engage in good deeds. Those are kalos deeds. In 2 Corinthians 5, he uses this word everybody agrees is strong, agathos, good that lasts. But here he says, kalos, be engaged in good deeds. These are good and profitable for men. The word kalos does mean good. But watch this. It also means beautiful or lovely. Your life as a Christian should be a thing of beauty. It should be a lovely life. It should be pleasant to look upon. It should draw others to Christ because of what they see in you. If they see something lovely in you, I'm not talking about your physical appearance. We all can't be uh, Brad Pitts or Angelina Jolie's or, or whoever the, the good-looking person of the day is. Wait around a couple of years, it'll change. That's why you should never count on that. We all can't be that way externally, but we can exude a beauty from within us that is so lovely, that's so pleasant, that other people want something of that. And that's this word, kalos. So that's our responsibility. That's from the positive side. But what about the negative side? But, and here's a contrast, but shun or avoid, avoid at all cost, Foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Worthless for what? Worthless to, to have anything contributing to you getting a well done at the judgment seat of Christ. So Paul outlines in verse 9 the other side of the coin. In strong contrast to a beautiful life is a life moved off focus by concentrating on, among other things, foolish controversies. A pastor, or actually by extension anybody in a local church, who's focused upon learning and doing the Word of God, will have little time to engage in discussion about foolish controversies. One of the most memorable parts to my seminary experience was being an intern for Robert Leitner my last year there. In fact, Paul and I were Dr. Leitner's last interns before he retired. And we've joked around he didn't retire because of that. He was already going to retire, but he had this come up. In fact, I'll tell it now. When I went to receive my evaluation for my internship, I went to receive it from a fellow who uh, didn't particularly value Dr. Leitner very much. And I remembered why, because he had talked in one of Dr. Leitner's classes one time, and Dr. Leitner had called him down on it. 
And I remember sitting down with him, and he says, Oh, you, uh, you did your internship with Leitner? How did that go? And I said it was one of the best experiences I had in the last four years. And he said, Well, I didn't, I didn't mean to insult you. I said, Yeah, you did. You did mean to insult me, and you meant to insult him. But I'm telling you right now, it was one of the greatest experiences of my life spending as much time as I could and as much time as he spent with both Paul and me during that year. But I never forget one exercise he put me through. And it concerns what I read here to you tonight about the foolish controversies, avoiding them. I believe it was, it was on a Thursday. I remember that. And he, he, he pulled out a letter. He says, i got an assignment for you over the weekend. Now keep, now, keep in mind, at that time, I was commuting to Dallas twice a week, round, round tripping it, in, in a car that had 180,000 miles on it. The, the bumper was literally tied on. I was working four days a week, and I was just begun to pastor the church. So I had Sundays were pretty tied up. But nevertheless, he gave me this letter that had been written to him, along with a book and along with a review that he had done of the book. Now, the letter wasn't very kind. It was, as a matter of fact, he was the, the, the writer of the letter was the author of the book, who was real upset with Dr. Leitner's review of the book that he had done in a journal called BIPSAC, the Dallas Seminary Journal. I said, what do you want me to do? He said, well, this is what I'd like for you to do. I'd like for you to first to read the book. I said, okay, this weekend? He said, yeah, I'd like for you to read it this weekend. You should be able to do that. All right. He said, then I'd like for you to read my review of the book, and then I'd like for you to read this man's hate mail about my review, and then I'd like for you to compose a letter that you think I ought to send to him answering the various points that he's brought up about his disagreement with my evaluation of his text. It was a text on dispensationalism actually arguing against it. So I so, said, okay, I, I did. I thought, well, this is a neat exercise. So I read the guy's book. It was lousy. It was, I see why Dr. Leitner tore it up. I read his review. I agreed with everything in it. And then that wasn't just because I was his intern, because it was very fairly done, probably a lot milder than I would have done. And then I read the guy's letter to Dr. Leitner. It was pretty vicious. And so I sat down and I composed this, this pretty acerbic response back to this fellow. And then I brought it back to Dr. Leitner the next Tuesday. We sat down in, in our regular meeting, which was usually around lunchtime. And he said, well, what do you think? I said, well, I agreed with you totally. And here's the letter that I've written for you to send back to him. You just need to have it typed out on the seminary stationery, and, and it'll be done. He read the letter. He said, that's a good letter. That's a good letter. He said, well, now what do you think I ought to do? I said, well, it's interesting you asked that, because I've been thinking about it the last couple of days. I said, I don't think you ought to send it. He said, really, why don't you think you ought to send a letter? I said, well, well Dr. Leitner, to tell you the truth, this guy, this guy is a lightweight compared to you. And you really shouldn't be spending a lot of time interacting with him. All you've opened up, you just opened up the door for a lot more letters and a lot more emails and back and forth. And it's going to be taking time away from where you really ought to be focused I said, you know, the guy's got his view. You're not changing his view. The letter's not going to help anything, although it's a really, really nasty letter that I wrote back for you. <laughs> he kind of leaned back in his chair, as he did sometimes, and he said, uh, I said, good, that's what, I'd hope, that's what I was hoping you'd do. See, he never had any intention of ever sending any letter back to that guy. But what he wanted to teach me was to avoid foolish controversy. Now, now, if it was a legitimate deal, he would have been happy to. If it was, he would have been happy to answer back, said, you know, with whatever it was. But not this guy's letter. The, the, the guy's letter went over the top, and it was a waste of his time to answer. Of course, he didn't think it was a waste of my time to have to go through that exercise. But I haven't forgotten it. 
I haven't forgotten it. And there have been times, I've got to tell you, there have been times when I've received some really over-the-top emails. I'll get up at 2 o'clock in the morning and say, by golly, and then I won't send it. Sunday will ask me in the morning, well, did you send it? I'll say, no, I didn't send it. i say, well, you learned your lesson, didn't you? <laughs> the point is, if you allow Satan, the, the master at the deception of deflection, that's what he's doing. When he, allows, when he does just, just a little bit to get you off course for what you've been sent here to do and start fighting battles on the side when the victory is that way, to start arguing amongst yourself, when the enemy is, as Chuck Swindoll said one day, men, the enemy is over there. The enemy's not sitting right next to you. Then you've been deflected off your course. And you've gotten into these things. Shun foolish controversies and genealogies. Genealogies aren't a big deal today, but that was one of the controversies that they had. And Paul didn't see any point in spending a whole lot of time arguing over that. And disputes, or strife and disputes, both about the law, for they're unprofitable and worthless. The, fra- the factious person of whom Paul is speaking has accepted the threatening philosophy of the Cretan false teachers who specialized in foolish inquiries and fights over the law. Now remember, at the time, at the time, they're not under the law any more than we are under the law. The word factious here is a person who, without justification, creates division. Did you hear that? Who, without justification, creates division. There may be times when you have to disagree with with someone, disagree with a pastor or a theologian on fair grounds. That's not what this passage is talking about. Actually, in the original, the word for factious is where we get our English word heretical. And in light of the context, it's probable that the translation of heretic, like some translations give, is is not unreasonable. I prefer the New American Standard rendering of a factious person, but if you understand what heretical meant in the original language, it's not that far off. Today, a factious person may not be introducing arguments over the details of the law. Very seldom do they. Each generation has its own foolish controversies. But factious persons should be rejected in all generations. One note, and this is a very important note, so you don't walk out of here with the wrong idea. Paul is not speaking about honest inquiry into doctrinal issues. He's not speaking about giving honest answers to honest questions. That is right, and that is good to be able to do that. So I'm, not, I'm in no way trying to discourage you from ever writing me and to ask me about a, a doctrinal issue or to, to stop me uh, you know, out here or anywhere else and, and uh, call me up on the phone and ask me a serious, honest question about a doctrinal issue. But if it has to do with a foolish controversy... I don't want to bring up any today in case you were thinking of asking, but I'll bring up one of a, of a generation ago. How many angels could dance on the head of a pin? Do you really care? I don't. You know, i got other things I need to spend my time on. But if you were to ask me a question on the extent of the atonement or the deity of Christ, or is hell a literal place? I mean, we'll be, I talk about those all day long. So he is not speaking about honest inquiry into doctrinal issues. Rather, he's referring to fruitless discussion on the one hand and outright evil on the other. 
Paul says in verse 10, Reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. The rejection of such a person would likely involve his expulsion from the local assembly, from the local church. But it should not be done in haste. People can make honest mistakes, you know. An allowance should be made in those cases. But a part of a pastor's job is to protect the unity of the local church. And when an individual attempts to divide the body with ideas contrary to sound doctrine, he should be warned, and even warned again a second time. But if the warning is not heeded, he must be removed. It's like any false teaching. The false teaching of anti-Semitism, for example. You come in here and you start, te- you start promoting anti-Semitism. I'm going to warn you a first time, then I'm going to warn you a second time, and then you're going to be out of here. Because we don't need that here. That's anti-biblical. It's anti-Christian to be anti-Semitic. We worship a Jew, by the way. I hope you remember that. That one was tried here one time. I mean, fortunately, I haven't had to ask hardly anybody not to come here. But you come spewing that stuff, you're gone. Because we don't need that kind of discipline here. We bring enough of it on ourselves, I'm afraid. We don't need the extra discipline associated with that. One thing should be borne in mind, though. Always borne in mind when it comes to removing somebody from a local church. And that is that any kind of church discipline, and that would come under the category of discipline, must come from love. It must flow from love. It must flow from a desire to heal. Never, ever for a desire just to get rid of somebody. Maybe you don't like their personality. Maybe they rub you the wrong way. That's not a good reason to throw somebody out of a church. Much patience must be shown. Even when the error is very grievous and dangerous, every effort must be put forth to win back the one who is in error. However, if the member has been lovingly warned, refuses to repent, and continues his evil work in the midst of the congregation, he must be asked to leave. But even this measure, even this very extreme measure, has as its ultimate purpose the restoration of the sinning one. Remember in 1 Corinthians There was a man who was engaged in behavior that would even have embarrassed the pagan Gentiles, the pagan Greeks in Corinth. And that was a pretty hard thing to do in Corinth. He was having physical sexual relations with his his stepmother, with his father's wife who was considered to be his stepmother. And Paul had to swoop down on the Corinthians because they weren't doing anything about it. They weren't kicking him out. They were just acting like it was no big deal. When the rest of the Corinthian community was saying, boy, those people... Really strange to allow that person in their in their fellowship, but then we get to the book of Second Corinthians, and if it's the same person, and I think that it is, and and when we get to Second Corinthians, the man has repented, he wants to come back into the church, and now they won't let him back in, and that's just as wrong. Paul says the the purpose of discipline is to get them to change their mind, not to destroy someone. It's never up to you or me to destroy one of God's sheep. That's up to Him. He wants to discipline them that way. That's fine. But if someone is causing divisions in the church illegitimately, then they have to be removed. The welfare of the entire church unto the glory of God must be preserved. Frankly, this is not the easiest aspect 
of pastoral ministries. Sometimes we are too quick on the trigger, and people are removed who would have repented if we're given the opportunity. Sometimes we're too quick on the trigger. Other times we're too slow, and damage is done that takes a significant amount of time to heal in a local body. Pastors aren't perfect, and our timing is not necessarily perfect. But it's our responsibility 